0: confusion fades. just a word, and suddenly I'm not afraid, cause you speak.
1: Church Bibles page number will be 691 today, page 691. And some praises. Uh, Daniel reports to us that his dad's surgery went well. Bless the Lord for that. Pray for an amazing recovery there. The doctors will even be amazed at what God will do there. And we pray for healing throughout, physical and spiritual. Linda is better today. Bless the Lord for that. We pray that she is able to get back with us soon and come worship with us. And we're going to continue to keep rival Jr. in our prayers and Martin Placentia. And uh, in thinking of Martin, I just think that our scripture is so much of a reminder of how God has established his throne. And his days and his timing is perfect. And that's what we pray will continue in all that. <clears throat> so we pray, God, that Uh, He'll bless this reading in uh, Psalm 103, verses 19 through 22. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion, Bless the Lord, oh my soul, amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the day that we can come and just humbly give you praise and honor for the answered prayers uh, for Martin, for Linda, I'm sorry, for Lee, um, uh, Lee Martin and for Linda. We pray, God, that you continue uh, to just work in their bodies and you would encourage their spirit, give them strength, And Lord, just show them how you are the one that has established your throne. And Lord, you are the one who has appointed all things to be. And so we pray, God, that you continue to work. Also, we lift up um, Raul Jr. Lord, we don't know what your plan is there, but God, we know you have a perfect plan. And so we continue to cry out for him, that you would, Lord, draw him to yourself above all, that he would know you that he would call you his Lord, and he would see that you heal him. Lord, however you choose to do that, Lord, we pray that you would just work your amazing miracle in Riley Jr.'s life. Pray that for Martin as well, Lord Jesus, we're reminded that um, (laughs) so many things doctors say over the time, not that we're against doctors, but uh, you give them wisdom at times, and you direct their path as well, and we bless you for that. But God, they don't know what you know and so, so many things that are spoken and we've seen in so many different examples, Lord, that Your plan is perfect, and that You have an idea and You have a way that all things should go. So we bless You for that. We, we know that we can trust in that, and we can trust that You are faithful, and You're God, and You're a loving God above all things. We bless You for this day. We thank You would cover our, our sanctuary, our church, today with Your mighty Spirit that you would rule here, that you would eliminate any distractions that would keep us from hearing what you would have for us today. Be with those not with us. Bless them where they are. And, God, we thank you for the opportunity to praise and worship you and hear a word from you today. In Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Amen.
2: Show your word. Satisfied to behold you from a distance. Just a glimpse of your glory was okay. I used to be satisfied just to hear your voice every now and then, to make my sacrifice and go. different
3: Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Great to see you. Well, I am so excited to be with y'all today and to um, to share together in this transforming word. And I say that because this isn't my word. This isn't my message. This is the Lord's word for each and every one of us. And um, the Lord shows me things as I study. And he, he gives insight and understanding that I wouldn't have. But as As the lord gives this word he is speaking to me directly and so i'm excited to share in this word that is uh is not for any one of us in particular but it is for the edification of this body today so if you would turn with me we will begin in philippians chapter 2 in the church's bible page 1348 philippians chapter 2 page 1348 So you'll remember that among the reasons that Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi was to address a quarrel that was happening between two members, Euodia and Syntyche, that had affected the whole church. Um, We don't really know what it was about. We don't really know the strength of this argument. But we know that it was affecting the whole church so I was thinking about this yesterday because the church at Philippi uh, was probably around 50 to 100 people most most scholars and teachers believe and so this is a church where um, everyone knows each other everyone knows each other's circumstances and business Uh, they know each other intimately no one is getting lost in this church and likewise with our church no one's getting lost in here are they We know each other well, and um, we are close friends with one another. So what would it be like if Susan and I had a disagreement? If we had a quarrel, maybe over the type of worship songs that we like, or the type of communion wafers that the church serves? This could be devastating to our church, couldn't it? opinions would form. People would have perspectives. You might even choose a side to support or a side to oppose. And this would um, have a devastating effect on our church, wouldn't it? Now it seems silly to say something about worship songs or communion wafers, and so we'll leave it at a small matter so as not to rile any of us up but imagine the devastation spiritually that this could have among God's people I think at the very least this would draw attention away from the rightful place which is not on any one of us it's not on our preferences or opinions or experience but it's on the Holy Spirit it's on the most high God we're not here for one another we're here for him and we're here for them Paul's response to the Philippians was to urge them not to be divided from the Spirit of God. Paul doesn't care at all that they have different tastes, different opinions. So he doesn't say that they need to agree to disagree or that they need to shake it off and shake hands. Instead, he explains they need to be united with the Holy Spirit in order Not even to solve this problem. He never mentions this problem being solved. He simply says, you need to be united with the Holy Spirit. Those are sobering words, right? Because they don't even acknowledge the fact that we are entitled to differences of opinion, perspective, experience, taste, preference. We're not entitled to those things in the body of Christ. It's important that we understand that Paul is not a mediator who's seeking to hear out the situation or gratify anyone's flesh. Instead, Paul is an apostle who offers a radical perspective to proposal, opinion, rank, file, experience. So it's with this understanding that we'll read together in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There are a lot packed in just a few verses. Seems like we could spend our entire time on just a few words. These verses that we've just read are, are linked to the previous paragraph, the things that we studied last week. Paul begins with this word, therefore, which means he's, he's joining what he'll say to what he's just said. Paul explained to us last week that, that we are to stand strong against the enemy schemes that take place outside the church. Paul talked about sufferings and things that the enemy has planned for us. And so now he tells them and he tells us how to act inside the church as we experience difficulties. His point is to make us aware that things are going to take place outside of the Lord's house. Things are going to take place outside of the unity that we're supposed to have with believers, and that is a certainty. But then he says, this will also take place in the body. In this place, there may be a greater spiritual aim for destruction. We almost just assume that this is like touching home base, right? Like we're playing hide and seek all week long, and if we can just get here, we're good we're in the company of trusted friends right this is the greatest battleground that we face the enemy seeks to destroy each and every one of us from being unified with the spirit and therefore unified with one another there are spiritual forces aiming for our destruction There are spiritual forces aiming to divide the people of God from his spirit and one another. If we don't acknowledge this, if we don't confront this, we will be destroyed. Maybe not physically that we might notice, but spiritually. So in verse 1, Paul uses this, this type of statement. He says, if there is any. This is in a rhetorical way. He's not actually asking this question. Not like his other letters where Paul might use a sarcastic tone to get the attention of those he's talking to, but this has the opposite effect. Paul may be direct, but his tone is as loving as Paul can be. See, I think Paul is really a weepy, romantic guy. I think that he is an emotional guy who is is wound so tight to the spiritual things that the Lord has given him. But right now, he is pleading with his friends to hear his word. His friendship with them is not first and foremost. It is a result of the fact that he was an apostle sent to give them a transforming understanding. And because he's seen them transformed, he considers them dear friends, and he writes to them, shaking them to grab a hold of what they already know to be true. He's pouring his heart out. And so he says that his joy will be fulfilled, not if they do these things, not if they happen to fall into being selfless or being kind, but if they receive this word from the Lord. If they do that, if they receive this word, Paul will be over the moon, not just with happiness and frolicking around, but his joy, his spiritual countenance will be completely filled up. The idea here is that the Philippians have, if the Philippians have received the things that he's mentioned, this warrants a response. So the if here that we read about is not hypothetical. It's not hopefully possible. Paul doesn't doubt the Philippians. So this if has the meaning of since or because. Because of these things. Since these things. If each and every one of you are truly in Christ, then these things are a reality and a certainty. He says first, If there is any consolation in Christ, as we said, this is rhetorical. So the meaning is that, of course, there is consolation in Christ. This word consolation means encouragement, comfort, and joy. Of course. Christ does not bring depression. Christ does not bring woe. Christ brings comfort and encouragement and joy. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in the church's Bible on page 1326. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1326. We'll read together in chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. Paul's the author here as well, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we might be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as The sufferings of Christ abound in us so our consolation also abounds through Christ now if we are afflicted it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer or if we are comforted it is for your consolation and salvation and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that you are partakers of the sufferings so also you will partake of the consolation. I've never seen Paul use a word so many times in just a few sentences before, right? But each of these words, comfort and consolation, they're each the same one. And, it, and the authors use a different one to try and convey a different meaning. What, but what Paul says is, if we are in Christ, consolation, comfort, joy, encouragement, period. Whether we are suffering, whether we are enduring, whether things are difficult, whether things are great, whether things are grand, whether we have all we want, there is to be comfort provided by Christ, period. And if we don't have it, we're not just missing out on it, we're refusing it. We're refusing to receive what is innate and determined for believers. Our lives are to be different because of Christ, period. Period turn over to 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 on page 1360 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 page 1360 just verse 16 same author here Paul says in chapter 2 verse 16 now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father and our God and Father who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work He says he's given us everlasting consolation. Everlasting consolation. It's eternal. The nature of God, the nature of the Spirit and of Jesus is to encourage and comfort us. It began when we began to know Jesus and it will not be completed ever. We should understand that if we're in Christ, his comfort should equally be in each and every one of us. We have the opportunity to be encouraged by what Jesus has done and what Jesus is ongoing to do. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2 on page 1348. The next thing that Paul says in verse 1 is that if there is any comfort of love, again, this is rhetorical too, because there is comfort of love. There is certainty and confidence of love. Some translations say his love, but that word his is not there in the Greek. I believe that this love that that we're reading about is is love that is to be exchanged between each of us because of Christ's love that is in us. This is agape love. This is love that I believe implied for us to have that is not conditional. That we're not to come into this place and, and maybe have some consolation of the Spirit, some encouragement of Jesus, but not really love each other because I don't like Bob's blue shirt today, so Bob, you're out. I don't like Joe's glasses today, so Joe, you're out. I'll catch up with you next week. We don't get to condition the way that we love one another based upon our likes, our dislikes, our thoughts, our opinions. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, page 1321. First Corinthians chapter 13, page 1321. We'll read all of 13 Paul's perspective on agape love he says in verse in, in verse 1 of 13 though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but I have not agape love I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not agape love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and, and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I think it's important to say here that probably many of us have, have actually seen love fail, haven't we? We've seen love that's not trusting, love that is not Uh, love that is self-seeking, love that is self-centered. But that's not the love Paul's talking about. See, this love Paul's talking about is not of human origin. We can't manufacture this love. We can't muster up this love. We can't pull this love up by its own bootstraps. This love originates with God and his spirit, and it's only enabled for us by God's spirit. See, this great passage about love that's read at weddings and that is imagined with grand dreams is in the middle of Paul talking about spiritual gifts. This love is a spiritually enabled gift. Without God's Spirit, we can't have it, we can't imagine it, we can't even fathom it. So if we've received this type of love from God or from others, we really can't even believe it's real. We've got to have God's Spirit to receive this love. This love that Paul speaks of is extraordinary, but it is the expectation and the standard requirement for believers in Jesus' name. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2, page 1348. Philippians chapter 2, page 1348. The next thing that Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. This word we read as fellowship, we've, we've talked about, it's, it's a word that means partnership. It's a word that means uh, unity. It's the Greek word Koinonia. And it's a fascinating word. There's no English word that comes close to even conveying its meaning because it, it captures the, the interactive relationship that we're to have with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We're not in a one-sided relationship where God's doing all and we're doing nothing. God does all. But in order to partner with that, we have to be in this fellowship that is first Spirit-enabled in the first place. It conveys how we as believers are participants in God's work and purpose through the gospel. The next thing that Paul says is, if there is any affection and mercy. These are are both pretty Christ-like words. Affection and mercy are words that are used again and again of Jesus to describe how he interacted with people. He had affection on them, so he spoke with them and ministered to them. Because of his mercy, he healed them. So they're physical words describing a spiritual connection. And I believe that Paul is saying this is how he feels towards the Philippians and how they ought to feel towards one another. They are to be filled with affection and mercy towards one another turn to Colossians chapter 3 the church's bible page 1354 over just a few pages to your right Colossians chapter 3 page 1354 We'll read just verse twelve of Colossians chapter three. Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long suffering. Our translation says it says, put on tender mercies. This is the word affection and mercy combined together. See this word translated tender or or affection is a, words, a word that comes from the spleen. It's a word that describes our inward parts. It's a word that describes our, our guts, so to speak. From the most intimate place of us, we are to love one another. It's this intimate place that allows us to have this, this mercy, this compassion, this compassion that's not conditioned by our feelings or emotions or opinions or experience. These are spiritually motivated words. With each of these places that Paul mentions, he's saying that they they are to serve as a template and as the catalyst for what goes on in the Lord's body. For how we're to relate to one another because of the relationship that we have with the Lord. If we think that what we're doing here is in any way like what we have in the world, we are dead wrong. The Lord envisions something for us spiritual that cannot be manufactured by physical things. This love, this unity, this compassion can't be made in a factory. It can't be designed on a computer. It is out of this world. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2 on page 1348. In verse 2, Paul doesn't just say that if you want to make me happy, everyone, do this. He says, it would fulfill my spiritual joy if you would grab a hold of what I'm saying to you. First, he says that we're to be like-minded. This word paints a picture. It's the diaphragm in our chest that regulates our breathing. That's what this word means it combines the organs that have an effect on our outward behavior, right? So when we're, we're all huffed and we're, we're breathing heavy, it changes how we act, doesn't it? If we're out of breath, if we've just ran a race, if we've just had a long day, it changes our outward behavior to other people. But Paul says that we're essentially supposed to breathe the same, so we behave the same. Next, he says that we're to have the same love, We're to have the same type of love that that is to be conditioned because we love Jesus, not because of what we think or feel or want. This love that is according to the Father's purpose, this is the love that they should have, that we should have, so that we love on spiritual purpose. Next he says in verse 2 that they are to be in one spirit. This isn't the Holy Spirit, but a word that, that means that their souls are to be united. Literally, that they and we would be soulmates. Being soulmates would mean that we would share the same identity. Not just that we're cut from the same cloth, that we're like each other, that we we like some of the same things, but that our identity would be the same. Like the Father and the Son and the Spirit's identity are the same. Finally, he says, being of one mind. This is different from being like minded, it's progressive. He's waded deeper in the waters for us to say that we're to be of one mind. Essentially, that we're to have the same thinking process for decisions. It doesn't mean that that our experiences, that our perspectives, that some of the things we know and understand and perceive don't influence how we think, but that how we decide is the same. The Spirit of God is, is to guide our decisions, nothing else. Does this sound like any church you've ever known? Maybe not. It's hard. It's hard for a collective group of people to equally leave their own way, to equally decide that above all else, God alone matters. Paul is essentially telling them to have the same attitude. And he says it in several ways. Kind of like somebody who who is talking to a spouse perhaps and is trying to explain to them what they're saying. They say it louder and different and louder and different. Paul is hoping that one of these things will communicate what he's hoping they'll understand. He's not saying that, that we have to be the same person have the same likes and dislikes. He's not wanting us to be robot believers that all function the same and move in lockstep. But he's reminding us of what we've received, which is not like any learning. It's not like any transfer of information or goods, but that we've been given spiritual opportunities that they and that we are not to be divided from. Whether it's our our guts or our brains, Paul wants us to be unified. He wants us to understand the significance of this spiritual oneness that cannot be manufactured physically. Physically. It's why Jesus gave us an example and continually went to the Father and prayed to the Father. Even Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going to risk going any other way but what the Lord would lead. It's why he tells us, I and the Father am one. There is to be no division between them. Finally, in verses 3 and 4, Paul offers what the accomplishment of this unity will look like. Kind of word for word, literally translated, he says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from empty conceit. But consider others better than yourselves. Each person not looking out for their own interest. But... Each person also looking out for the interest of others. All these things kind of sound like a utopian society, don't they? Like a sci-fi movie. It's almost a little too good to be true. And frankly, this is impossible. It is. It is impossible apart from the spirit. Businesses try to have this kind of unity, don't they? They have seminars and training. They talk about things like servant leadership, right? And they try so hard to manufacture this kind of setting. And we try to manufacture this type of setting. Churches have program upon program. They do things like spiritual formation and retreats. They try to connect and get to know each other, find out about our likes and dislikes so we can find commonality and grow together as believers in Jesus' name but we can't. And we find ourselves again and again and again at odds, flesh upon flesh. Because what Paul describes is spirit upon spirit. The first thing that Paul mentions towards this unity is not to be motivated by selfish ambition. That's what he says in verse three. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. This term is only used a few times in scripture and it was used out of scripture as a, a word to identify a political cause that was greedy and wanted to take control of the government illegally or with unjust means. There's no political connection at all here with this word, but it describes greed A greedy attempt for gain. So the first thing that Paul says this kind of unity will look like is not being greedy for any type of gain. It's interesting that Paul uses a term that they would have been well familiar with, and certainly it's almost election day. We're familiar with this type of greed, aren't we? This type of attempt for gain. And Paul says, don't do this. If there's anything most people don't want to be like, it's a politician, right? We see a need for politics, but we don't want to be like what we see. And that's what Paul says. This has no room in the body. He starts with an explanation of what is unacceptable and shouldn't be done, and he's going to build on this towards what our actions should be. Step two, he says, is that that they and we aren't to do anything out of conceit. Being conceited is often easy to recognize in others, isn't it? But very difficult to see in ourselves. In the Greek, this is a, a compound word that combines the word that means empty or vain or nothing and the word glory. That's what being conceited is. These words are really at odds with one another. You've got emptiness and vanity and nothingness and glory. Combined, it conveys a state of pride that is without basis or justification. I think at the very least, what Paul is trying to say is that the glory belongs to the Lord and not us. Truly, any glory that we desire will be vain, empty, because it is without basis. For us, this kind of desire is anti Holy Spirit. Step three, Paul says, is that he wants us to be humble. I love how this word's actually translated here in verse 3. It says, but in lowliness of mind. Humility is such a hard thing to grab a hold of, isn't it? A lot of people want it. Few people have it. It's difficult to describe, envision, take steps towards. And I don't think it's because it's really that hard. I think it's because it's really that hard being lowly of mind. The Greeks considered humility to be a fault and not a virtue. Greeks and Romans have lists for everything. Many virtues they explain, but this is a risk and a liability, and it's condemned among the culture that Paul writes to. Society in the New Testament saw manhood or personhood or adulthood as one's ability to assert authority over another. Doesn't sound like anything's changed in 2,000 years, has it? Success for us is to assert authority over someone else for our gain. This word to them and most is offensive and foolish encounter. In the next step, Paul clarifies this even further to say that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Like being humble, this is the complete opposite of what is common and cultural. After all, we we are taught to have good self-esteem and the importance of having good self-esteem. Oh, yeah, she's a nice girl, but she's got low self-esteem. Yeah, he he probably won't be able to do that job. He just doesn't have enough self-esteem. The Bible seems to know nothing of good self-esteem, does it? That we should carry this attitude of confidence and swagger to every conversation and situation. Just the opposite, that, that we're to see the value of others and naturally have concern for their needs and concerns. Concern for others doesn't... Negotiate big deals, does it? Concern for others doesn't land successful jobs. But Paul says, if if we're to have a community where everyone is looked up to, then no one is to be looked down upon. Finally, Paul says that we're not to look out for our own interests, but the interests of others. That's what he says in verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Here is Paul's thought completed. If we do away with our selfish ambitions and vain glory, our tendencies to be high-minded and self-absorbed, this will naturally flow from us. It's like we will be spiritually unlocked from the bondage that we're in, conditioned to think only of ourselves and our gain, and naturally, we will serve others. Can you imagine this kind of freedom to not be worried only about who's in the mirror? Throughout Scripture, we are given holy instructions that are completely counter, not only to the world, but to our flesh and to our nature. By all accounts, we are given impossible expectations, aren't we? For many, it's easy just to rely on grace. We all sin, thank goodness for grace. For others, it's more practical to focus on others to define our behavior well, no one's perfect, I am who I am, I'm doing the best I can, at least I'm not so-and-so. Words often even said in the church. But scripture is not in the business of offering self-help one-liners. God's intentions are to change the physical through the spiritual. Any changes we want in our lives physically will not be made well until we are spiritually connected for the Lord's purpose. Paul tells a new believer named Philemon, who was a fugitive from his master, to return to him into slavery that they might come together as brothers in Christ. Paul tells husbands and wives to submit to one another to a fault, it seems. But to do this is out of reverence for the Lord. Oh, if the church would embrace the Lord's ways, all would know for his glory. You see, these physical relationships, our best efforts are focused on the habit and the action, and that's why we come up short. We set small, reasonable goals for us to improve ourselves and do a little better than terrible. God's intentions in these physical relationships is focused on the attitude which is spiritual, which produces spiritual results. What Paul outlines here for us is an if-then explanation. We learn this in probably the fifth grade, right? There is a cause for something and there is a reaction. If we indeed have consolation in christ if we have comfort of love if we have fellowship with the spirit if we have affection and mercy then the result will follow we're not relying on our own imperfections subject to change the effect of the spirit in us will mean that we will do nothing out of selfish ambition we couldn't the spirit can't be selfish We will do nothing out of empty, vain conceit. But the Spirit will enable us to consider others better than ourselves. To enable each of us to look out not for our own interest. To enable each of us to look out for the interest of others. You see, we're both given the answer and the means at the same time. These things are impossible. They would take the Holy Spirit. I tell you, they would take the Holy Spirit for me to look out for someone other than myself, if I'm honest. Even the best of people have an aim and an intention and an end game. They've got a reason for what they're doing. And it's not for the good of someone else ever. People are not good. You're not good. You're not good. I'm not good. Because good is not just an attitude we tell our children about to be positive. Good is to be according to God's purpose. And so even what motivates us spiritually to put others above ourselves is not just so that things will work out. It's that God would be glorified we must recognize that apart from the spirit these things are impossible because they are contrary to our very nature if then we have them it's not because of the good that we have done it isn't because we put in the 18 days to form a habit if good things are happening if the spirit is working we don't get to take credit that's vain glory it doesn't work It's something we cannot take credit for once whatsoever, which is the wonderful work of God's Spirit to first change the spiritual so that He can affect the physical. When we wonder why our physical conditions are not where we want them, we need to go right to the mirror. okay let's turn a couple more places turn with me to Matthew chapter 20 Matthew chapter 20 on page 1136 studied here some time ago when Deborah taught on this place and it has it has stayed with me since then here in this passage in Matthew 20 the mother of James and John comes to Jesus with a request that would make her proud of her sons and make her sons very happy this is the false version of what Paul would be made joyful with right Let's read together in chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, this is Jesus, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. When they heard it, they were greatly displeased with, excuse me, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, from all sides of this story, the disciples had yet to be changed into what Paul describes. They've got pride, jealousy, greed, anger, entitlement, all of them. You've got James and John's mother coming to Jesus and saying, can they sit on your right and left as co-heirs to the kingdom of God? You've got James and John right there who are buying right into this request. And then the response of the disciples is to go, oh man, James and John again, with the pride, with the vainglory, welled up themselves in these same spirits. The purpose of the enemy is to divide the people of God from his truth. And it's happening right here. But it's given to us as an example. To all of them, Jesus says in verse 26, not so with you. For the rest of the world, this kind of request is okay. For the rest of the world, it's okay to be frustrated when your brothers and sisters in fellowship of some kind are being foolish. Not so with you. Now turn to Acts chapter 4. Let's see, I didn't write down a page on this. So when someone finds that in the church's Bible, if they don't mind to share it, Adam, are you in Acts 4? Okay. Well, if you turn with me to Acts 4, we'll read just a few verses anyway. 1256. Acts chapter 4, page 1256. So in Acts 4, this group of disciples and other followers, just something like two months later from this situation, something incredible happens. We'll read in chapter 4, verses 32 and 33. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon upon them all. So this group of selfish, prideful, vain, entitled, angry people, two months later are like a group of completely different people. Hey, you have some of this, you have some of this, I'll take some of that. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? Let's preach the gospel with power and strength because the Spirit's been given, and we can't help but to do this. Their actions could not help but be the hands, the feet of Christ. And unselfishness and looking out for others above themselves. This is the calling upon each and every one of us. That we would no longer be the Peters and the James and the Johns and the Mothers. That we would be apostles sent out with a message that's not just in our words but in our hearts and our spirits and our guts and our brains. It's not just to say how many we've saved or how many we've preached in front of or how many things we've done in the Lord's name. It's that we ourselves would not be divided from the spirit of God. these people didn't find it hard to be united with this spirit once it was given. They were of one mind and one heart and had all things in common. I pray that this spiritual fellowship that Paul describes would be in our congregation, would be in each and every one of us. It's not enough to hope or to assume. It's not enough that because Susan and I aren't quarreling over our worship preferences or the communion that the enemy isn't aiming to stir up quarrels. We have to cast down every crown before him. We cannot assume that because we don't see it, there is not division in this body. Our enemy is powerful in his greatest tools are our complacency and our ignorance. Today, he has been exposed. And I pray that we would receive this word and that the heavenly realms would rejoice. Amen.
2: Take away the melodies, take away the songs I sing, take away all the lies, and all the songs you let me write. Does the man I am today say the words you need to say, let them see. see.